welcome to Sound Strategic. We are today talking with Greg Austin, who runs our cyber program, and we're going to be talking about Huawei, Chinese espionage, the use by China of their corporations, the way their increased domestic repression and international bullying is damaging China's international reputation. We'll talk about his project measuring cyber power and the remarkable insight that China's cyber defenses are actually very weak. Uh, we will talk about the way that China's cyber relies on Western companies to provide their protection and his ideas about the, the cyber in industrial complex and the way that Western elites are and, and actually our broad Western discussion focusing so narrowly on China actually serves to reinforce the propaganda of the Chinese Communist Party. I hope you'll listen. I am Corey Shaki, the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and this is Sound Strategic, our house podcast that celebrates the expertise and outstanding work of the analysts of our institute. And today I have the great good fortune to have visiting Arundel House from our office in Singapore, Dr. Greg Austin, who is the director of our cyber program. And he came to us from the University of South Wales, where he was a professor and the deputy director of their cyber programs. He's written a couple of outstanding books on China and cyber. One, Cyber, Power and cyber Policy in China, the second one I can't quite remember, but he's also done a lot of work on the rules-based international order, one of our favorite subjects here at the IISS. He wrote a terrific book called Power and Responsibility in China uh, that uh, originally was in 2001, came out in 2014. Again, he uh, in the dark days before he was part of the IISS, he had also been at the East-West Institute, the International Crisis Group, holds a PhD from American National University. Greg, thank you for coming to talk about the work that you do. Well, thank you, Corey, for that very warm welcome. <laughs> so... Um, it's almost odd to ask which of the many issues you work on are in the news, since all of them are in the news. The nexus of China and cyber being such a neuralgic subject for the West. Let's start with Huawei. What's going on? Well, that's a very good place to start, Corey, because we've gone beyond uh, the old debate about China in cyberspace, which was largely around cyber espionage to a new level of uh, anxiety about the position of China as a geopolitical heavyweight in the whole ICT sector and the way in which Huawei, as a representative of that, really is starting to disturb global uh, the global balance of economic power, if you like, the global balance of technological power. And so we're in a situation where the company Huawei really encapsulates uh, the whole sort of in a sense sense of anxiety that people in the United States are feeling about global competition between the two countries. Mm -hmm. And uh, why are people worried about Huawei in particular? Well, there's been a growing uh, sense of anxiety about this company since about 2009, 2010. Uh, I certainly first was asked to write about it around 2009. There's been questions about transparency, about how the company operates 
Uh, there's been some misplaced, I think, fear about the fact that it was set up by a former PLA officer. Uh, but it, it's a bigger set of concerns about China's unrelenting use of cyber espionage, uh, China's undoubted use of its corporations, whether they're state-owned or private, uh, in pursuit of its geopolitical interests. Uh, and there's some sort of overlay uh, coming out of China's domestic policies. So we might try to analyse any of these international issues around espionage or the like independently of what's happening in China. But I think there's been a growing dissatisfaction, uh, certainly in the Western world, with China's domestic policies. The increasing repression just colours everything. So people can't easily judge China's international actions anymore as dispassionately and in such a balanced way as they might once have. Yeah, at this point about even private companies uh, coming under pressure from the state or choosing voluntarily to act in alignment with the state uh, really came into sharp focus in the U.S. last week when the manager of a National Basketball Association team uh, tweeted support or retweeted something in support of the protesters in Hong Kong and that NBA games couldn't be shown on Chinese TV anymore. Uh, you know a lot about China, not just a lot about cyber. How should we understand the, the Chinese government's decisions in this regard? Because from my perspective, it looks to me remarkably short-sighted. And for all of the people who think that Chinese Communist Party leadership are brilliant strategists with 100-year time horizons, it seems to me the, the question they need to answer is, if these guys are so brilliant, why did they just activate the antibodies against China's continued rise before they win the AI race, before they have dominance of the global economy, before they get the Belt and Road Initiative in place? What do you think they're doing? Well, I think your characterization is uh, very apt. So the Chinese government has historically been one of those governments that seems able to shoot itself in the foot better than almost anybody. <laughs> uh, and what we've seen in uh, the last decade, really, is that along with quite reasonable estimation, e estimations of China's increasing weight in geopolitical affairs, we've actually seen a very sharp dive in China's international reputation. So every time it puts pressure on a country, like it put pressure on Norway, because Norway hosted a visit by the Dalai Lama, so they cut off uh, or, uh, or severely curtailed imports of smoked salmon from Norway. Uh, had a huge impact um, on the Norwegian economy. Uh, and it um, those that's already seven or eight years ago, and those uh, Norwegians, sorry, Norway's salmon industries exports have only just recovered, oh. uh, including to China. So, so China shoots itself in the foot very well. And uh, as we try and understand what China's global influence looks like, we do have to factor in the proposition that uh, many things it does in the international space are really causing its reputation to decline. So we who are diplomatic analysts can look at the numbers when China is involved in various UN resolutions and we can find, oh yes, there's 60, 70, 80 states who support the Chinese position, but then we have to go to back to things like 
well, the islands that uh, China built in the South China Sea beginning around 2014 created a huge strategic shock, uh, which China won't recover from for decades. Uh, Such a good point. And I noticed at our Shangri-La Dialogue, WSS Shangri-La Dialogue uh, last year, that the American Secretary of Defense emphasized several times that Xi Jinping had stood in the Rose Garden with the President of the United States and promised that the islands wouldn't be militarized. And that that had such, as you suggest, a big shock effect in the United States is the start of the reconsideration of whether China can ever uh, become or will ever become a responsible stakeholder in the international order. So I want to talk more about the excellent cyber program you are running because it is my favorite thing we are doing as an institution to grapple with creating a metric to assess states' capabilities to use cyber as an offensive weapon. Governments all over the place are in a panic about the, the, the centrality of cyber in warfare, but we're an institution that loves ourselves in data, and I really like the way your program is grappling with this question. So talk us through your thinking about it and, and what you're trying to do. Sure, well, the program be began before I arrived at S, and it was set up very well by um, an investigative article, I think published by Nigel Inkster, uh, on ways of measuring cyber military capability. And that program was developed by another colleague, uh, 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 Marcus Willett. And so when I arrived, we were in the process of uh, commissioning a number of country studies, uh, for the moment about 12 due by the end of the year, in which we're using that seminal article, the foundational article, about how to measure military capability in cyberspace as the foundation for those um, pieces. And where we want to arrive at uh, is a position where we can summarize neatly, almost in number format for the military balance, but uh, more broadly in very simple language for top-level political leaders, we want to be able to summarize the essence of cyber warfare, the essence of cyber military capabilities, and be able to give some sort of sense of where country A stands relative to country B. Any of those 12 country studies you'd like to give us a preview of? Well, I can talk about the China one since I'm very familiar with it, but there's a couple of others I could mention. So the uh, China case study is interesting because it replays a judgment that I'd made elsewhere that China's defenses in cyberspace are weak to very weak. And now that surprises many people because we Surprises we're, me. <laughs> it's a yes, because uh, we know that China's very active uh, with cyber attacks of one sort or another. Uh, it may not be the most active in the world, but it's certainly among the most active and it's certainly the most talked about. But it's easier to launch a cyber attack for espionage than it is to defend yourself against cyber attacks for espionage. And, uh, and Chinese foundations of cybersecurity, beginning with their cyber industry, their ICT industry, but if you look closely at their universities where they teach information security, we get a very bleak picture. And we, we know we can count the number of universities who teach cyber security, we can count the number of graduates who are coming out. We know exactly what they're being taught because it's all available in public sources. But more importantly, we know from leading Chinese sources how dismal their own assessment is of their cybersecurity. Ah. Uh, and so 
we're in this interesting situation where through these country studies we're able to in a sense come confirm some of the known capabilities of countries like china uh, indonesia india or france but we're also able to put alongside that a considered judgment that's consistent for each country about where they stand say on the spectrum of capability um, in defense uh, both for peacetime cybersecurity but more importantly for wartime cybersecurity uh, it's such an interesting project and I really like the way that 12 country studies are our uh, testing for the rigor of the methodology and refining it and then once we are confident we've got it as solid as we can have it to to run through all of the 173 countries in the military balance. I think it's going to be a huge contribution to understanding of where cyber fits in current state senses of military power, but also uh, the direction of travel on them. I think it's just great. So, 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 how did you get interested in cyber and in China? I also saw you speak both Russian and French as well. Well, uh, yes, yeah, so my interest in China, I think that demonstrates that my interest in China came later. <laughs> so um, I learned French in high school. I started to learn French in high school, studied it for many years subsequently, Russian at university, and I was, in fact, a Soviet analyst for many years until right? somebody took my job away <laughs> or, that, uh, or the job ceased to exist. Uh, but I had uh, worked on China as early as uh, 1983 with a posting um, in Hong Kong for the Australian government. Uh, my first uh, assign assignment on Chinese affairs, though, was in 1979 when China invaded Vietnam. Oh, and, wow. And that's an, a historical event often forgotten. Uh, in, uh, so when people talk about China building uh, islands in the South China Sea as being a bit aggressive and a bit expansionist, well, <laughs> if you compare it with invading a whole country, um, as China did in 1979, uh, you know, one can sort of reframe the question about you know how new is China's um, strategic sort of disp disposition. Yeah, so how did I become interested in it? Um, well, uh, if we go back to the early days, uh, 1965, Barry Maguire's song, The Eve of Destruction. Uh -huh. uh, there's a line in there about China. Uh, <laughs> I took note of that at the time and never really forgot it. Uh, my birthday is United Nations Day. <laughs> Happens to be yesterday. and. Uh, and so um, really through my life, I've always had this interest in international affairs. The China cyber thing, though, w was a slow evolution. Only about 10 years ago, I became involved with it through the East-West Institute. And the East-West Institute has a reputation as being a track two organization, a bit of a peacemaker trying to resolve differences of opinion. And that was a reflection of just how serious, even by 2010 or 2009, that um, these issues of cyberspace security were becoming uh, in global politics. And that situation has only got worse. Mm. Uh, so uh, we've got, had a whole decade now of experience of increasing contestation in cyberspace. So in that environment, I wasn't about to walk away from it. Um, and I've found the opportunity to uh, become involved in, in it in all sorts of ways, most recently at a university before coming here. Mm. Excellent. And what's your favorite book in your field? Well, the favourite book in my field is a bit obscure, I'm afraid. Um, so there's a... No, no, no. That's a virtue, <laughs> not a vice. A moral philosopher at Oxford University called uh, Luciano Floridi 
uh, who's published a number of books around the moral philosophy or the ethics of information. And the reason why he's particularly interesting is that he, uh, his analysis suggests that the information age brings with it a fairly substantial transformation of almost every aspect of our lives, mm. uh, including um, how we understand what's good and what's bad, uh, what's moral and what's immoral. And he has a number of key judgments in it about what we should expect from the information society. And some of these have direct relevance for military affairs, and that's what I found really interesting. Huh. Uh, is uh, So he makes judgments uh, which are not that controversial in philosophy, I suppose, is that the information age has uh, fragmented authority, there's been a dissemination and a distribution of authority, and that weakens the political uh, position of governing elites, uh, and that uh, people are much more empowered now with their different forms of access to various information technologies. When did he write this? Uh, well, he started that sort of line of thinking about 2002. Interesting. Uh, and, uh, but it, his big book, he published, republished a lot of it and repackaged it in a big volume in 2013. But it is di his book is directly relevant to um, understanding almost every aspect of the information age, including military affairs. What is the conventional wisdom about cyber that you think is wrong? Or about China that you think is wrong? Well, uh, very good question. Uh, so in the same way that I just alluded to the Viet Chinese invasion of Vietnam in 1979 as a precursor and a much bigger thing to worry about in a sense than the island building uh, since 2014, I think that the Western elites don't understand deeply enough the degree of China's dependence on the world. So I, I just said that uh, China's cybersecurity is weak to very weak. What's pretty well undocumented uh, in the public domain is that China relies on US corporations for its cybersecurity. <laughs> uh, now that may sound surprising, and the, the best illustration of that is that Microsoft signed a contract with the Chinese government now about two years ago for the supply of Windows 10 a special Chinese edition to the Chinese government. The edition uh, was uh, vetted by the Ministry of Public Security in China. But as you know, with all software packages like that these days, the frontline security is actually provided inside those packages. You don't need to buy the old uh, add-on antivirus software. It's all in there. So we've now reached a situation where Microsoft, through the cybersecurity components of those packages is providing the cybersecurity for virtually the entire Chinese <laughs> government, or will be when, once those, um, that software is rolled out through the entire government. It is such a delicious irony that the Chinese Communist Party leadership, who uses Chinese corporations for state purposes, is banking on the American government not doing the same thing. Right. <laughs> it's a very delicious irony, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's that, those sorts of ironies and nuances which are a little bit lost uh, in, a, in a lot of the public debate about where China sits and how powerful it is. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about your favourite data visualisation. Okay, so you won't be surprised to learn that my favourite data visualisation is one on the uh, Chinese digital economy, uh, and uh, what it shows very interestingly uh, is that the United States relies uh, for uh, 
the ICT sector for about 60% of its GDP. So that means that uh, the old days when China was an agricultural exporting nation, uh, the hub of what you might call old-fashioned uh, industrial manufacturing, automobiles, refrigerators and the like, uh, we've now gone to a situation where many of those sectors have been overtaken wildly by the ICT sector. Hmm. So we live in the global information economy. There's a cyber industrial complex that we can talk about that's operating globally. It's globalised uh, and it's dominated largely by the uh, United States uh, and um, other countries apart from China. And this uh, visualisation, this graphic I have here, uh, shows that by comparison, even though China is the second ranked state in terms of total output of the digital economy, uh, China's only relies um, on the ICT sector for about 30% of its GDP. So mm. the United States is an economy based on, totally sort of dependent on, living off uh, and creating uh, this ICT sector. Uh, China, uh, much less so. And interestingly, as we know, that China contributes really to um, a very large slice of the uh, actual products that are being used in the global ICT sector. Another part about the visualisation that's interesting is that when we look at uh, the next ranked countries, which include Japan, Germany, the United Kingdom and France, and add them up together, we see that the ICT sector in the European economy, the, sorry, the European Union's economy, we see that that's almost approaching United States levels. Oh, interesting. So we have, uh, and then, yeah, and so... The US and its allies together dominate the world of ICT beyond any shadow of doubt. And so China is not an also-ran, but China is well behind the combined weight of uh, the United States and its allies. At last year's Reagan Defense Forum in the US, uh, Michael Brown, the former CEO of Symantec, who now runs DOD's Defense Innovation Unit in Silicon Valley, made a really interesting um, uh, parallel to that statement, which was uh, somebody from Silicon Valley said really nervously, but we can't ignore Chinese markets. Uh, and Michael Brown's uh, rebuttal to that was, uh, but if you think about the combined markets of the United States, Europe, Japan, Australia, India, um, not only is the combined market size much greater, but also if you're looking for data pools to develop artificial intelligence algorithms, um, China is not the only source of that kind of magnitude and that in lots of ways, China may turn out to be an anomaly in all of those things that make it hard for China to reach the levels of aggregation that other countries, allied countries, can reach together. Yeah, well, I think that's a very apt observation uh, by Michael Brown. And the data that I've been collecting around this question of the global cyber industrial complex really demonstrates convincingly that, that China is really only a fragment of that economy. Uh, so of the order, for example, in terms of import of ICT goods uh, and services, oh, sorry, import of ICT services, China's importing about 7% uh, of the world total, and in terms of exports, uh, only about 6% of the world total. Mm. The Un European Union uh, and the United States totally dominate that market. Uh, so uh, it's a very good point. 
And I think that that's why working, you know, deeper investigation of things like the Microsoft relationship with the Chinese government, what is the character of the global cyber industrial complex, uh, where does the power really sit, where are countries like India and Japan uh, actually operating. So we have, for example, in the top 10 uh, of telecoms companies in the world, um, two Indian companies. Yeah. Uh, so what does that mean? Uh, and we still have, uh, of course, a leading Japanese company, I think, is the fourth ranked. So, so uh, interesting. It's, it's really yeah, quite this narrow focus on China yeah. uh, is to China's advantage, right? It makes them seem a lot more dominant than, in fact, they are. And indeed, that's very interesting because a lot of the commentary in the West actually supports Chinese government propaganda. Exactly. You know, so the Chinese <laughs> government would love the world to think, well, they're, they're this sort of all-powerful, all-dominant force and can't, can't afford, we can't afford to cross them. But in <laughs> fact, um, uh, yeah, so we have to be careful, in fact, that many of the things that we do and say by this careless analysis actually reinforces Chinese party, Communist Party propaganda. Um, we, we need to be more critical of this national myth that the Chinese perpetuate, and even Henry Kissinger perpetuates it, this false history about unbroken Chinese uh, historical tradition and cultural impulses for 5,000 years. It's, it's a fabric of uh, propaganda, really, uh, if you look closely at it. That's a fabulous note for us to end <laughs> on. Greg, thank you so very much for sharing your time today and sharing your expansive talents with the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Well, thank you, Corrie.